Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? Are you okay? Well, coming up, as always, we've got one full author interview, another author answers five questions in five minutes, and five book reviews. But let me tell you, I don't know if I've mentioned TikTok before. Forgive me if I have, but uh, yes, I decided to dip my toe into book talk. It is unbelievable and amazing how many videos on TikTok are about books and authors talking about their books and book reviewers. It's immense. So I thought, yes, let's dip my toe in and see how it goes. It's fair to say it didn't go so well. So I did I make the mistake or was it a good idea? the jury's out, on giving my 14-year-old the um, management of my TikTok account. He was head of social media for TikTok. And certainly he has boosted my numbers. I mean, uh, we're still on low numbers, but we're up considerably from just the double digits that we were in before he started. The problem is that I seem to now have a majority following of 13 to 17-year-olds. So... I'm not entirely sure this is working. And if you're of that age category and listening to this podcast, can I point out that the books that I review are adult books? So just making that observation there. Um, it's very good at, at boosting the TikTok numbers. But anyway, we'll see what happens uh, as, as it all goes by. But let's get on to the book. So today... I am interviewing John Brownlow, whose book 17 has just been published. Then we've got CJ Tudor on to answer five questions in five minutes about her latest book, The Burning Girls. Then I'm also reviewing From the Ashes by Deborah Mason. Um, Then I'm also going to review Welcome to Your Life by Bethany Rutter. That was a holiday read, don't you know? And finally, another holiday, well, it's sort of pre-holiday, beginning of the holiday read, The Weekend by Charlotte, and I can't even see a surname now, Wood. Four of the books I really enjoyed, one not so much. Which do you think they are? All will be revealed in this episode. So let's get stuck in straight away. John Brownlow is someone who writes words. He's been involved in all sorts of films, TV series, writing them. Uh, You know, he has... He has his credentials. And then he woke up one day and decided, I know, I'll write a book. Well, it wasn't quite like that, as as we'll hear. But yeah, he's written his first book, even though he has 
made writing his his life. So let me tell you about the book. Let me find the bit of blurb because it's hiding from me. Uh, yeah, here we go. 17, 100 years, 17 assassins, one hell of a ride. There we go. Um, here we go. Behind the events you know are the killers you don't. When diplomacy fails, we're the ones who gear up. Officially, we don't exist, but every government in the world uses our services. We've been saving the world, and your ass, for a hundred years. Sixteen people have done this job before me. I am seventeen, the most feared assassin in the world. But to be the best, you must beat the best. My next target is sixteen. Just as one day, eighteen will hunt me down. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and it gets lonely at the top. Nobody gets to stay for long. But while we're here... All that matters is that we win. Let's do the first sentence of this book. <laughs> well, it's going to be a few sentences, but there we go. Being a spy, it's not what you think. It's boring. I don't mean boring as in dull. I mean boring as in mind-crushingly, ass-clenchingly, teeth-grindingly tedious. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I love this read. I'm going to say what I think before we speak to to John because otherwise he, <laughs> I've forgotten to say it at the end. I really enjoyed this book. I loved it. It was as close to watching a film as you can get reading a book. No word was wasted. It had action. It had humour. It was just, it was a joy to read, if you can say it's a joy to read, to be reading about all sorts of violence. But you're straight into incredible first opening scene. I just loved it. A great book. Can't wait for more. And I think, you know, this is better than Lee Childs as well. Better than a lot of them. So, yes, if you or someone you know likes those sort of action-packed books, have a look at this one. Because um, I, I commend it. I commend it to the house. <laughs> say, say. Anyway, let's go and talk to John now. John Brownlow, author of the fabulous, fantastic and marvellous book, 17. Welcome to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's an absolute delight to be here and very unusual for me as well. <laughs> I have to ask. So I believe you studied maths at Oxford. You've written, produced, directed films and TV series. You're a musician. Now a book. How long did it take you to get round to writing it? About 25 years, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I kind of fell into writing. I'd, I've done so many different weird things. I went to university to study math, maths, and then after a year of that, I didn't. I realised I didn't want to know what X equaled anymore. And all of the more interesting people were studying English, so I managed to bamboozle my uh, dons into letting me change to English. So I've <laughs> en ended up doing three years of Eng a year of math and three years of English. Then I decided I wanted to be a photographer. And then I failed at being a photographer and then I decided I want to work in TV. So I became a TV researcher and investigative journalist. And then that led to being a TV producer and director. And I worked as a TV executive for a while. And then I, I was making documentaries. Documentaries are really hard because you have to deal with reality and the way that things actually turn out as opposed to the way you'd like them to turn out. And um, But sitting in editing rooms for many, many hours putting together you know, stuff that we'd filmed of reality gave me, I think, a knack for creating narrative. And I got very interested in telling stories. And I decided I wanted to be able to tell my own stories and not whatever reality threw at me. 
uh, and by then I'd also, because I'd done 10 years of sort of trundling up and down Britain and, and parts of America and Europe, meeting the craziest people, you know, bank robbers and murderers and archbishops and former prime ministers and nuclear physicists. And I mean, honestly, you wouldn't believe the people I met. And so I had one of the things that comes out of making documentaries is that people tell you, you go into someone's house to ask them about something you're researching as a documentary. And they tell they, you have one thing you want them to talk about. But then they start telling you other stories that you can't use in your documentary because it's not about that. So you're going to talk, you're talking to someone about the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1938. And they start telling you a story about politicians, a polit political scandal in 1950 or some lost atomic bomb in Germany in 1963. And you go, that's fascinating, but let's go back to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so you end up with this huge store of untold stories in your head, or I did anyway, um, that I wanted to tell. So I started, anyway, so long story short was I started writing screenplays because I wanted to direct them. And then somebody paid me an awful lot of money to write a screenplay. And I, so I rode the horse in the direction that it was going and started writing. Um, and I had no idea whether I could write a novel or not. I did So I did that for 20 years, basically. And I, I, at one point, I did attempt to write a novel, and it was so bad that I just had to kind of put it away in a drawer, and it would never see the light of day. And then the pandemic came, and there was a story that I had be, had in my head for a long while. I'd actually pitched it as a movie several times, and without, with complete lack of success. And, um, and... But I knew it was a really good story, and I had the beginning of it, which is exactly what you read in in, in the book. I didn't. I mean, I kind of knew where it went from there, um, and for various reasons, I just ended up with three months of spare time, which was the first time I'd had three months of spare time in twenty years to write something that I just wanted to write and not ask anyone's permission to write it, which is what you do in TV and film. You're always going on a bended knee to ask someone, "Can I please write this thing?" And they always go, "No." You can't. Right? How about writing this other thing instead that we would like you to write? And they send you a lot of money, which is fine. And uh, so I just sat down to write it. And then when I, it was interesting because when I started to write it, I realised why nobody had ever bought it as a film <laughs> because I realised that I realised that I hadn't really thought it through properly. And so it turned out that the the process of writing a novel was very different from the process of writing a film. Um, and I had to learn all of that in the process of writing it, which was interesting. Um, uh, but anyway, I finished it and then looked at it and I thought, oh, I wonder what you do with that now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mentioned that opening and it's the same in the book as when you first came up with the concept. And I have to say, you know, I, I often I have a book to read that I need to read. So I'll sit down and just start the, reading the first couple of pages. And with yours, there wasn't any, you know, oh, I need to get up and do other things. It was just you're just placed straight into the action um and I just yes I didn't want to get up and and do other things I just wanted to read more and more but I'm interested and this is a really stupid question but I've got to ask it because I am stupid why 17 is I mean is it a play on 007 or is there some completely different reason for that I really like the number it's a prime number so it's not divisible by anything. And I don't know, it's just the number that crops up whenever I think of a number, or it's 17. And also it worked for, you know, the, there was a plan in my head, which was that I wanted, you know, I'm a, as a, I wrote thrillers for years. I've written so many thrillers as screenplays. And I, I, I'm a sort of professional consumer of spy stories. 
and so I have a, I have a million spy, real, true life spy stories in my head. But nobody really wants to make just a another spy story about a child spy on the streets of Moscow or, a, you know, a Berlin policeman in 1931 investigating murder in Hitler's apartment or, you know, a Cuban revolution story or a North Korean, you know, counter Monte Cristo story, which are all great stories. But just as single standalone stories, they kind of come, they disappear without trace, really, into the world if you tell them because they're not part of a bigger world. And I thought what I the concept really behind Seventeen was that because he was it was a kind of a dynasty of of spies and hitmen that this would allow me to tell those stories and string them out like light bulbs on a string or you know washing on a line and that I could tell some of these stories as you know about number two or number sixteen or number nine. And they would all be part of a universe, uh, you know, and what part of the inspiration was the idea that we in the world of superheroes, we have Marvel and DC and so on. But nobody's really done that with espionage and spying and so on. And I thought, well, that's, a, you know, the possibility of creating a universe that has shared characters between stories. Mm. So the idea really is that it becomes a universe. And then not only can it be a sort of vertically integrated 16, 17, 18, 2, 3, 4, but also we can tell other stories in the 17 universe. So there could be another book about 17 or another book about 18 and so on. So it was a way of kind of integrating all these, this world and um, and so making it more than just one book was the idea really. But it all came from that first page of 17 really was the the the, the the idea i also felt sorry i'm going to bore you but i'm just going to tell you about my theory about um spy novels is they've all got a bit grim and i wanted to do something that was fun and in sort of in the same vein as some of the sort of 60s era james bonds but very much updated for the present day and that also interrogated a lot of, I mean, as I've written many thrillers, screenplays, which, you know, inevitably feature an incredibly handsome man who is a former special forces soldier, uh, who, you know, everybody, all women fall in love with him as soon as they look at him. And I wanted to interrogate all of those cliches and, you know, and, and also write about someone who came from nowhere, who didn't, who didn't have that, that background, because what I found, in, what I found for me interesting about writing it was, um, how would I become a hitman? How would you become a hitman? You know, we're not, we've not, you know, been Royal Marines or Navy SEALs or anything like that. And yet, so how would you do it? And what would, what would that process, what would your background be? What would the process be like? So trying to make him, 17, I've tried, to, I know he isn't really an everyman character, but in some ways he is because he has no particular special abilities other than those that he's taught himself you know he's a he's an autodidact of a hitman I think and I love the character of 17 I would want him on my side he's so talented at destroying and protecting did he develop as you were writing him or from the very start did you did you get him he developed yeah he did develop he developed in a really interesting way this is what it kind of goes back to what I was saying about why nobody bought it as a film and what I discovered when I was writing it was that a after I'd written the first section, I mean, I won't give any spoilers, but there's a, the, it goes up to a point where, you know, suddenly you realise, oh, this is what this novel's mm -hmm. about. The lock-in, I call it. You know, that's the point at which you can't stop. You know, you've got to read this book, hopefully, until you find out 
you know, what the outcome is. But I got to that point in the story, and I, you know, he's quite an entertaining character up to that point. You know, he's an asshole. I mean, he's very deliberately, self-consciously an <laughs> asshole. Um, and I, I thought, you know what? I don't really like him. Uh, I, I, um, he's shallow and there's nothing redeeming about him. And I'm not sure how I can write the rest of a book about this character if I don't like them. You know, I just... And I sort of sat back and went, oh, God. <laughs> I've got 30,000 words into this and now I can't continue. <laughs> and... Um, I'm Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, I knew I couldn't write. And then um, I just had the, the line, my mother's name was Junebug came into my head and I realized I wanted to know who he was and and where he came from and the moment I started writing that it all fell into place and I knew who he was and and I think that's the moment where you start to engage with him emotionally as a character is because you start to understand where this kind of ridiculous persona very constructed persona comes from and who he really is and um it was a great relief when I finally started writing that, and I really enjoyed writing those parts of the novel. And um, and it, it, yeah, it, so it it saved the novel really when I did that. I'm interested though in you saying how it took you some time to sort of write the book because you've been so used to writing film scripts, and it is a, a different craft. And often um, authors say if they hit a, a block in their writing of a book they're told to drill it down to a film script to take out all the words and that helps them so it's funny how they are so different and yet it's the same skill set well it's this yeah i mean i'm i'm very much of the view that all that that all storytelling in fact almost all art is all of the same mm. cloth mm. that the you know music and film directing and writing screenplays and so on but they but they all exercise different bits of the muscle you know it's like you know a tennis player's right arm gets really strong and its left arm doesn't you know the weightlifter's got equal you know and um one of, with this film scripts are very very um concentrated you have 120 pages you have you know maybe two lines to describe a piece of action you know every single piece of dialogue has got to count for something um, if if there's any scene in a film script that doesn't move the story forward in some tangible way, it will be removed and it'll be edited out. So that and and as a writing a, writing a screenplay, you rely massively on the imagination of the person who's reading it to fill in how an actor would portray this, what the set designer would do with it, how the cinematographer would reveal something, and so on. So and you know what the director's going to bring to it. It's such a massively collaborative process. So really, it's very vestigial, a film script. I mean, you, it's meant to be. It's, it's designed to be. Um, you know, the people get upset if you start trying to direct it on the page. And the difference with a novel is that you do have to do all of that. You've got to do all the set designer's job. You've got to do the actor's job. You've got to do the director's job. You've got to, you've got to use your words. Uh, that's, it turns out, you know, um, which... Um, uh, it took me a while to get my head around that. And I mean, I'm not sure. I think that, you know, it does read like a screenwriter's novel for sure. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons is it's written in the present tense and first person, which is, uh, you know, as a screenwriter, you always write in the present tense. I'm just, I just naturally write in the present tense. I know that some people don't like that, but for me, it had an immediacy to it that was, I, I enjoyed. 
and and also the very specific and when often here's another thing that's maybe not obvious is that in films you're often stay on the protagonist's shoulder really you don't you may you a lot of films you never see a scene that doesn't have the protagonist in it you're always from the protagonist's point of view and i wanted to be quite strict about that in the novel that you shouldn't know anything that the protagonist doesn't know um and there are some scenes with his with Kat, who turns up later, that I had to sort of uh, do some hand-waving to get her in. But anyway. And the film rights have been sold for the book. They have. They, uh, they, uh, they, and I've written the... I've just finished the second draft of the screenplay for it. Um, so it got sold to uh, the very lovely Travis Knight, who, um, among other things, is the son of Phil Knight, who founded Nike. Um, and he also runs, uh, Travis is an amazing character. He runs an animation stu studio called Laika, which produced uh, Coraline and Kubo and the Two Strings and all these fantastic stop motion um, uh, stuff. He also directed the the last Transformers movie, Bumblebee, which was surprisingly extremely good. Um, and so we're, we're sort of marching towards production on that i mean i there is never never any guarantees with films at all but um it's looking quite good at the moment but i'm interested you had to add more flesh to the bones when you were writing the book and then when you were writing the script presumably you had to take some of that flesh away massively again. yeah that's right yeah that was yeah it was i mean the, it was interesting working with travis because you know i've adapted many books and I know how to ad adapt a book. And it, I took the same process with my own book, which was weird. But anyway, um, and, you know, I really... Movies are all about the A story. You know, they're all about the, the basic plot of, you know... And so I boiled it all down to that. And then Travis asked me to put, you know, a lot of the flashback and character stuff back in because I'd taken too much of it out, which is <laughs> nobody's ever asked me to do that before. <laughs> so <laughs> that was that was it was nice. And in the book, there's there's fighting, there's violence, blood, gore, and humour, as you've mentioned. Did you really enjoy writing it as much as I enjoyed reading it? Yes, I really did. I mean, I thought I um, in my head, it's like one of those Saturday morning serials they used to be on, you know, in the movies in the 1950s that George Lucas based Star Wars on, where, or the radio serials, like, uh, where at the end of each, you know, 15 or 20 minute section, you'd put the hero in a completely impossible situation and then get them out of it. And there was a sort of challenge to me to just continually put him in more and more kind of crazy situations without, you know, usually without knowing how I would get him out of it at all. Um, and and then having to improvise something because that's kind of what you would do if you were if you were some nutty hitman like he is and you found yourself in a crazy situation you haven't got it all prepared so in a way you, as a writer putting just creating bigger and bigger challenges for yourself is that's part of the the fun of it he was he is fun to write um, but there's also a, a sense in which he goes through changes in the book and become uh, his life becomes less fun let's put it that way. And the pace is well managed. It's not all high octane because the reader would be exhausted by that as as well. It happens in stages. Was that something you had to work on? Or again, did that just happen because you're used to that flow of a story when you're writing? 
I, I think of it as music, actually. I think of it that you um, that you need passages of quiet. If all if everything's loud, mm. nothing is loud, and if everything's fast, nothing is fast. So, uh, I just that kind of um, the rhythm of it, I think, is really important. And I spend the way I write is I don't write in one big document. I write in tiny, tiny pieces like little each chapter is you know a separate document and so i can uh, uh move stuff around and rearrange like a jigsaw which i do constantly and i often write out of sequence as well i don't necessarily write from the beginning to the end if there's an interesting scene later on that i want to write i'll just write it and then um the whole thing is very planned out in terms of how the story works but in then when i'm constructing the the actual flow of the book there's an awful lot of kind of inter intercutting i think of it as in like in a movie right where you mm. have two things going on at the same time so i'm interested if you get another idea now which light will go on first to deal with that idea as a book or to deal with that first as a script that's a very good question Basically, I think that the, the I mean, to be blunt about it, the business model of writing a book, then selling the movie rights, then writing the screenplay is a really good business model um, because you get paid three times for the same thing. So you know, talk about investing in yourself. Um, and you, it turns out that when you write a book, it's much easier to sell the movie the, the i sell a movie based on a book than it is to go to someone saying i've got this fantastic idea for a movie and they you know they go oh, i've got one like that already you know also the world of movies and tv has changed such a lot in the three, you know over the last 10 years it's extremely hard to get anything off the ground that isn't based on intellectual property whether it's a book or a comic book or a you know a remake of a film or uh you know a podcast or something like that so um you know, going into Netflix and pitching them an original idea, unless you're sort of a massive, you know, massively famous and have George Clooney attached, they'll have you escorted out by security. So, um, yeah, very much focused on books at the moment, and and at the moment, books in the Seventeen universe. But I mean, not to say that I have other books in my head, but that's what I'm working on at the moment. So is the production of a book, because I always, in my head, writing a book is longer, takes more time, the whole process, than writing a script. But have I got that horribly wrong? That's a very good question. The actual putting of words on paper is is longer and much more laborious it's you know it's it's hard it's physically hard at the end of the day if you've written two three four five thousand words i'm done mm. i you know i've got nothing left in the tank at all and you have to do that over and over and over and over and over again whereas a screenplay the actual putting down of words you know is a six-week job and it's you know it's not that bad but that's actually a very small part of the whole process because the planning is by far the most important part of the whole thing for me before any words are on paper i've thought through the whole thing i've outlined it i know you know to pretty good accuracy how the story is going to go who the characters are where it takes place i've done all the research you know i I'm, you, when you start building a house, you don't start. You don't build a house by putting a brick down and going. I wonder where the next brick should go. And you think about what kind of house you'd like to have, and then you talk to you know, and then you draw up plans and you <laughs> change the plans, and then you know you you look at the you know hand the plans off to a builder and you cost the whole thing. And 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 writing uh, for me, writing especially thrillers, which are very um, intricate, 
I have to have a plan. <clears throat> I can't do it by the seat of my pants at all. So that takes a long while. I mean, that can take years. That can literally, mm. with 17, I, I, you know, I have a big archive of my notes. I think going at 17, I started thinking about it in 2005, probably. So not thinking about it continually, but it's been percolating in the background. And then... Um, and then you, you finish it and then there are revisions and then there's a production process. And, you know, I, you, one of the things I didn't know about writing a book is that you have to read it 5,000 times after you finished it. <laughs> um, until you can recite, I can recite the damn yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the um, editing process is uh, incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I, had, I had no idea about that. <laughs> okay, you've got some quick fire questions now if you're ready okay, for Okay, yeah, go ahead. Assassin or spy? Both. Yeah, he has... Uh, he'll do whatever you pay him to do, basically. <laughs> Just as long as the check clears, I'll, he'll do either. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Book cover or book title? Uh, cover. And at the end of the book, do you just type a final full stop or do you actually type the end? Oh, the end. Those are the two <laughs> most important words any writer ever writes are the and end. They don't all type the end. This is the, the strange thing. I this, can't the it. satisfaction of writing the end is just extraordinary. You'd, how do you know you've finished? I think for the writers that don't type the end, it's because they're not sure that they have finished because they're... Agent, oh, publisher, editor, whoever will give until the, the final, final edit is done. They don't feel they can type the end. I, it's, everyone's different. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So is writing a job or an escape for you? Um, oh, it's it's a thousand percent a job for me. Um, I, mm. you know, I've supported myself by writing since 1997 and, you know, uh, by, uh, you know, I have a family who, and who depend on me to pay the bills by writing. If I don't write, then we starve. So yeah, it's a, it's a thousand percent a job. Uh, so is music, you're more of your escape. Music and photography. Yeah. It, I, and I wish I had more time to do it and I'm not, you know, I'm not very good. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. Um, but the but the reason why it's an escape is because if because I work in TV and film a lot, um, th the last thing I want to do after finishing a day of writing, whether it's a novel or, or a screenplay, is go and watch TV and what somebody else wrote. So that now I'm watching it, going like, oh, that did, piece of dialogue sucked, or I wouldn't have done that, or I could see that turn coming, or whatever. Like because you're, you, I, it's very very rare that I watch film or TV without an analytical head on and so that is the opposite of relaxing for me so uh, uh yeah i'd rather just go and have a beer in the garden and play the guitar and the book uh this podcast will come out a few days after publication but the publication okay. day is the 17th of august so was that deliberate choosing that day oh yeah no that's yeah. uh <laughs> there's been 17 all the way on the on the 17th of july at 1717, I handed out 17 copies of it at the Harrogate Festival. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like the... <laughs> the T-shirt, yeah. The T-shirt, I wear, you know, I got the T-shirt, I got everything. So, yeah, the uh, the uh, hot, the, uh, <laughs> the hot marketing department were very, very hot on 17. <laughs> they sent out 17, there were 17 review copies sent out. The, yeah, they, they, they took that, they got that between their teeth and ran with it like a dog with a bone. <laughs> 
But if you could go back and whisper something to yourself as you're sitting down to write the first few chapters of the book, is there anything that you would whisper? Well, I used to say when we're editing documentaries, which is a, a very difficult process, always difficult, that it would be so much easier if on the day one when you sat down to edit all these hours and hours and hours of crap that you filmed, if someone could just show you the finished cut and then I could do it in two days if, if someone had already showed me how I solved the problem. So it's a process. It's impossible to sit down and write the final draft. That's not how it works. You have to, you know, my process is very much that I give myself permission to write absolute crap. Um, and I, 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 I write, I don't edit as I go. I write and write and write and write, not necessarily in order, until I reach the end. Then you start the process of making it, you know, hopefully good. But it's not good at that point. It's not meant to be good at that mm. point. Well, we're glad you carried on because it's not just good, it's great. Thank you. John Brownlow, whose book is 17. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It would be a pleasure. Been a pleasure. Next, we have a short interview with CJ Tudor and more book reviews. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So let's come on to The Burning Girls by CJ Tudor. This was one of my holiday reads, as I said. I mean, I just, I enjoyed this book so much. It was great, great twists and turns. Sort of horror-ish, but, but not. It's got, just ticks all the boxes. Uh, this author is definitely on my auto-buy list now. Extremely good. She's got a short story book coming out next month. I'm... Um, ordered that already. I just love her writing. I just think it's exceptional. But let me tell you a bit about this book. So here we go. Here's the blurb. 
500 years ago, eight martyrs burned. 30 years ago, two teenagers vanished. Two months ago, a vicar died mysteriously. Welcome to Chapel Croft. For Rev Jack Brooks and teenage daughter Flo, it's a fresh start. New job, new home. But in a close-knit community, old superstitions and a mistrust of outsiders mean treading carefully. Yet, right away, Jack has more frightening concerns. Why did no one say the last vicar killed himself? Why is Flo plagued by visions of burning girls? And who is sending them threatening messages? Old ghosts with scores to settle can never rest. And Jack is standing in their way. Let's, be, let's go to first few sentences from the prologue. What kind of man am I? It was a question he had asked himself a lot lately. I am a man of God. I am his servant. I do his will. But was that enough? He stared at the small whitewashed house, red tiled roof, bright purple clematis crawling up its walls, bathed in the fading glow of the late summer sun. Birds chittered in the trees. Bees buzzed lazily amongst the bushes. Here lies evil. Here, in the most innocuous of settings. Um, yeah, absolutely excellent. Uh, I, well, I don't know why I was put off reading all these books because they are just glorious gems. I just thought they would be too scary and they're not. Yes, there are times when you are thinking, oh, my goodness, but it, you're not. It's not stopping you from sleeping at night or it didn't me. I don't know if I'm just changing as I get older and older and older or not, but absolutely superb. And let's go to CJ Tudor now. CJ Tudor, whose latest wonderful book is The Burning Girls. Welcome to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, very excited to talk to you. And we're going to be doing a full interview when your next book comes out. But for now, we're going to talk about The, the Burning Girls. Can you describe your book in under a minute? Oh, well, I should do my very, very, very best. Um, OK, so it's set in the small village of Chapelcroft in East Sussex, which is a village with a very dark history. 500 years ago, eight Protestant martyrs, including two young girls, were burnt at the stake. 30 years ago, two teenage girls disappeared without a trace. And two months ago, the vicar of the local parish killed himself. And so into this rather creepy village comes Reverend Jack Brooks and her daughter Flo to take over the parish. Um, but they soon find it's not going to be sort of the fresh start and a did it getaway they expected because Jack starts to receive strange creepy messages and her daughter sees apparitions of burning girls in the church. And they find them drawn into this village's mysteries and they realise to kind of save themselves and their sort of fresh new life, they have to untangle the dark mysteries of this rather creepy village. <laughs> Oh, it makes me want to read it all over again. It really does. Your second question, who's your favourite characters in the book? Now, what I would like is one major, but also one minor that you really enjoyed writing. Oh, so, I mean, obviously I loved writing Jack because I'm not a religious person. Um, and so obviously she is a, a vicar and a priest, but she's quite an unorthodox priest because she likes to drink and she smokes, <laughs> you know, she sneaks a cigarette. Um, and so writing her was, was an interesting challenge because... Obviously, I wanted to make her believable and relatable, but also, um, you know, convincing in her in her sort of religion, too. So she was an interesting challenge to write. Um, and also, I really liked Joan, who is is a smaller character in the book, but quite a, a quite an important character, who's this kind of little old lady who lives in the village. 
Um, but you know, she she's sort of like a little little Miss Marple in the village, basically, <laughs> who kind of you know helps helps Jack kind of get to the bottom of a lot of these mysteries. And I think it's nice to write characters like that because. You know, having represent, I, I, I like having older characters in books, particularly because I think you know Joan herself says, you know, people just look at her and see this little old lady, and they don't know all these things that she might have done with her life. And I think we do that with older people a lot. We kind of just go, oh, they're just a little old, useless person. And you know, these, you know, just because you get older, you know, we're all going to get older. Um, and you know, you know, you could have lived an amazing life and done amazing things, and then people sort of write you off when you get to a certain age. I think I'm perhaps feel, feeling that even more now. I've turned fifty. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Yeah. Yes. The club. <laughs> so your third question, and I must first compliment you. Is it your daughter who's been singing in the background as we've been talking? It's, <laughs> it is it's, indeed, yes. Good award winning. Britain's got talent. Here, here she comes. Anyway, yeah. That's so definitely that's what we say all the time. <laughs> your third question: what three feelings do you want us to feel? while we're reading it i'll go first on on mine if i if i can just to give you time to think so the first one for me is trust i trust you as an author that you're going to deliver the second one i'm i'm in fear as i'm reading it of what's going to happen to the well-being of of the people and the third one is a connection i am connected to those characters and and want all to be well for some of them yes that's good. Yeah, those are all things I would like people to feel, actually. I'd like people to feel intrigued, obviously. I want them to be, you know, eager to find out what's going to happen and turn the pages and keep on reading. Um, yeah, I want them to care. I want them to care and be invested in the characters. That's really important because I don't think... If you don't care about the characters, if you're not invested, then you don't really care what happens to them. You're a bit like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, so I want that. Yeah, I do want I, I want that as well. Um, I want people to be a little bit spooked and freaked out, I guess, because it's kind of you know, supposed to be a little <laughs> bit spooky in places um, and satisfied. I think that's what I always want people to feel at the end of a book, that they've had a, a good conclusion that, you know, the, the, the questions have been answered and they haven't been cheated. And, you know, they've got some some good reveals along the way I always think you know books often talk about twists but most thrillers are a, a series of reveals in a way and I think it's quite nice that you know if as a reader you might guess some of them but perhaps a few trip you up you don't you don't get the whole the whole thing at the end so there's, at least there's at least one moment where you go oh I didn't get that that was that was good I didn't see that coming so yes yeah, so satisfied hopefully as well excellent now the next question I don't know if you've been asked this question that that often but what food and drink did you consume the most when you were writing this particular book oh crumbs well normally um because i don't write a lot in the evening i write in the morning so it would have been cups of tea pints of squash which is what i tend to drink in the day and then an assortment of biscuits and sweets i'm a terrible terrible snacker so i don't like stop and have lunch and stuff i just like bring like like piles of snacks up to my desk <laughs> toast biscuits occasionally occasionally fruit if i'm feeling a bit virtuous but I, I have a, i have a horrible sort of sweet and biscuit habit so you know like i've normally got a bag of sweets by the side of the desk it's, it's midget gems at the moment i've been i've been eating um so yes yeah, so probably like lots of unhealthy things just to get the sugar to get me through the day yes the adrenaline so you're not a if i write this many words then i can have this as a reward it's just let's keep going let's keep yeah, no, keep typing. I don't believe in that kind of whole reward type thing. I'm just, if you feel like it, yeah, have it. No, that's great. <laughs> and your last question, what's been the most memorable moment so far in your writing career? 
probably, um, I'm a huge Stephen King fan, massive, massive, massive Stephen King fan. So I've like read all of his books, been reading him all my life since I was about 11. Um, so the biggest moment had to be when he read The Chalkman, which was my debut novel, and which was very much in many ways a homage to Stephen King and the 80s and horror novels and films and all of those things. Um, and yeah, amazingly, he, he read it and then he tweeted about it. Um, which which has to be kind of the best moment of my life, basically, um, when his tweet popped up. I was on a train to London, actually, and I just opened my laptop and it happened. It was the first the first tweet there. And I remember looking at it thinking, oh, he seems to be recommending a book. I wonder what this is. And then realised it was my book, um, which was just, yeah, just like bonkers, incredible. I think I just stood up and went, yes, um, and got very overexcited. And it's, you know, it's still pinned as on my on my Twitter feed and it will remain there forever and it will go on my gravestone. So that, apart from having my daughter and meeting my husband, I say I have to put those as asides because really it was the best moment of my life. <laughs> oh, just those moments you'll never forget. As you can remember. Yeah, it's like, and it doesn't yeah. matter now. Anything else can happen. I don't need to sell another book. Yeah. You know, I, I have that. And that's, that's, you know, just like, Perfect. It's funny, actually. The Chalkman was the first book of yours that I read. We did it as a book club. And as I was driving there, it was oh, the first right. time I'd been to this person's house and I wasn't sure exactly where to go. And then I saw this wall with a, a road going, a drive going past it. And on the wall was in chalk, this chalk. She'd drawn the Chalkman. I was like, oh, this is where I need to go. But actually, I don't know if I'm a bit freaked out Brilliant. about it. So. <laughs> That's kind of, it's a bit creepy, yeah. really, isn't it? Where am I going? Yeah, exactly. Oh dear. Um, so we're going to talk again in January when you've got your next novel, The Drift, out. Yay! But I do believe you've got another book coming out in September, A Sliver of Darkness. It's um, short yeah. stories. It is. It's a collection of 11 short stories, um, which I wanted to put out because I didn't put out a novel this year. Um, so I thought it'd be a nice kind of like kind of like appetizer um, in preparation for the next novel. And because I love short stories, I love reading them and I just absolutely love writing them. Um, so it was just a nice, I'm glad my publishers gave me the opportunity to do it because, you know, you, you, people don't publish as many short stories now, I don't mm. think. And perhaps, yeah, I don't know, there's perhaps not such an appetite for them. Yet we love stuff like Black Mirror and Inside Number Nine and, and all those sort of things mm. on TV. So, you know, I, I think we should sort of reignite our love of short stories a bit more. So, they're, yeah, they're, they're kind of creepy and macabre and weird. Uh, so it, they're going to be like a nice little sort of special editions, kind of nice hardback with a cool cover. So, so yeah, I'm really thrilled by that as well. So tied people over, hopefully, till the till the yes, yes, exciting. Well, C.J. Tudor, whose latest book is The Burning Girls, but A Sliver of Darkness is out soon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So let's go on to the third book today, which is From the Ashes by Deborah Mason. Uh, let's do the blurb on this. D.I. Eve Hunter and her team are called to the scene of a fire that has destroyed a home for underprivileged children in Aberdeen. No one knows how the blaze started. All they know is that one person didn't make it out in time. Her team have dealt with their fair share of tragedies, but this case affects them each deeply, particularly when they start to suspect that everyone at the home, from the residents to the staff, has something to hide. And when a horrific discovery is unearthed in the ruins of the property, the team must ask themselves did someone have a secret worth killing for and let's go to the first few sentences chapter one it was the sound that's what drew him in the seconds of silence watching as the flame caught orange tinned yellow sparking before growing and picking up speed the poor bastards inside unaware of the nightmare headed their way 
than the roar as the beast found its fuel. Crackling, popping rage as it moved, spreading across the floor, licking at the walls, its desire to devour everything in its path, eager and wanting more. Now, we've had Deborah on the podcast before, and this is the third in the series, the Eve Hunter series, but I don't think you have had, you should have, I'm waffling. You don't need to have read the other two to read this. You can just come into this straight away and see if you enjoy it or not. I think these are excellent detective books. The blurb describes them as a thriller. For me, they're they're crime books. A crime has been committed and you see the police trying to solve it and then it's solved and I certainly hadn't worked out who it was. I just think they're really well written. They've got good situations, good characters. The plotting is good. Yeah, it's just, it's a great read. I don't know why I'm not seeing these books talked about more because they deserve it. I think they're really good crime books. If you're a crime fan, try it. Deborah Mason from The Ashes. Bravo. Um, And now we come on to another holiday book. Welcome to your life, Bethany Rutter. Now, I had heard people raving about this book, saying it's all about accepting yourself, uh, who you are or the size you are. And I thought, well, love the sound of that. It's going on some people's list as the best book they've read so far. So it's like, well, let's try it. And what? Well, come on, Philippa, do the blurb first. Okay, this is a love story. Serena Mills should be at her wedding, but she's not. Instead, she's eating an ice cream sundae and drinking an obscenely large glass of wine in a harvester off the M25. Everyone thinks she's gone mad. She's left the man everyone told her she was so lucky to find because Serena wants to find love, real love, a love she deserves, not one she should just feel grateful for. So she escapes to the big city and sets herself a challenge. 52 weeks, 52 dates, 52 chances to find love. Should be easy, right? Let's do the first sentence-ish. Chapter one. Hiding out in a branch of Harvester on a roundabout, a huge glass of wine in one hand and one of those long ice cream spoons in the other, is not how I thought I would be spending my wedding day. But today it hasn't really gone the way I planned at all. The problem isn't the wine or the ice cream. Those are fine. The problem is that it's 12.15pm and the ceremony is meant to start in 15 minutes. Not only am I not there right now, I'm not going to be there. So it starts off and I was disappointed because I thought, oh no, this is just another romance book and I'm not really into this. And then it was like, oh, is this finding yourself? And yeah, that's fine. But then... I don't know how, when it happened, I can't tell you the point in the book, but by the end of the book, I felt transformed about how I looked at body shape. And I mean my own body shape. For example, you know, one night on holiday, I felt fat. I didn't, I was there in a dress and I thought, oh, this looks awful. And I was in a bad mood. And this book just made me think, what madness is this? Just accept yourself, girl. Just, you know enjoy life and it really it really moved me in it so I think it's a book I need to reread myself going forward so for me the story was fine but the lesson I got from the book was incredible so yeah it's an easy light read but there's there's stuff to it there's stuff going on there in the background and uh yeah 
Excellent. So there we go. Very different sort of read for me, I know. But hey, when you're on holiday, who knows? One one glass of carver and who knows what she's going to be reading. Unfortunately, she read the next book, The Weekend by Charlotte Wood. Again, people have been raving about this, saying how much they loved it. This was one of the books, actually, I panic bought when the first lockdown happened and there was all the problem in printing pages and there was the rumour that books would be no more, that books couldn't be made. I did go, it is fair to say, into a slight panic buy. The size of box that was delivered with my book order. I am both ashamed of it and also I remember <gasps> unloading that box with very fond memories. But this was one of those books because people have been saying, oh, this is such a moving book. It's really good, thought-provoking, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure it is for a lot of people. This was just me. It didn't sit well with me, but that's purely me. Loads of people love this. So ignore me. What do I know? But let me give you the blurb while I'm here. Sylvie, Jude, Wendy and Adele have a lifelong friendship of the best kind, loving, practical, frank and steadfast. But when Sylvie dies, the ground shifts dangerously for the remaining three. These women couldn't be more different. Jude, a once famous restaurateur with a spotless life and a long-standing affair with a married man. Wendy, an acclaimed feminist intellectual. Adele, a former star of the stage, now practically homeless. Struggling to recall exactly why they've remained close all these years, the grieving women gather for one last weekend at Sylvie's old beach house. Not for a celebration of her life, but to clean the place out before it's sold. But fraying tempers, an elderly dog, unwelcome guests and too much wine collide in a storm that brings long-buried hurts to the surface. A storm that will either remind them of the bond they share or sweep away their friendship for good. Uh, let's do the first sentence. Come on, Philippa. Be fair. Be fair. Be fair. Chapter one. It was not the first time it had happened. This waking early in the pale light with a quiet but urgent desire to go to church. Cognitive decline, doubtless, frontal lobe damage, religion, fear of death. They were all the same thing. Jude had no illusions. This longing? Was it a longing? It was mysterious, an insistence inside her, a sort of ache that came and went, familiar and yet still powerful and surprising when it arrived. As I say, there'd been so much talk about how this was one of those amazing books of the year and it didn't do it for me um I thought I thought it would really move me and I found myself worried about the dog in the book that nothing happened and I'm not saying from an action point of view because some books aren't about action but I didn't I didn't I didn't get what I was looking for from it and I didn't like how the friends weren't friends and it just didn't deliver for me. But as I say, that's me. And it was probably the mood I was in, as I can be. And it didn't hit the mark. And that's the trouble when you have expectation for what you think a book will deliver. If it doesn't deliver those, either it just surprises you and delivers even more or you feel let down by it. Um, so, yeah, 
ignore me. <laughs> Have a read of it. See what you think. Let me know. I'd be very interested what you think. But anyway, there we go. Those are your books for this week. So the recap, I have talked to you today about 17 by John Brownlow and John very kindly joined us for a full interview. Uh, we reviewed The Burning Girls by CJ Tudor and she very kindly answered five questions in five minutes. I also reviewed From the Ashes by Deborah Mason. Welcome to Your Life by Bethany Rutter and The Weekend by Charlotte Wood. There we go. That's it. We're done. I'll send you on your way. Got some great books, great interviews for you next week. So just hang in there for the week. Look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one ever. See you again soon. 